Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. It's a disease that's probably been around for thousands of years, but in the decades since it was identified here in New England, Lyme disease has taken hold. It's the type of disease that we don't have a magic bullet answer for. There's no one thing that we do that can stop it. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll talk with a doctor who's been trying to track the history and the possible future treatments for Lyme. And we'll consider a ruling by the High Court in Massachusetts and what it means for immigration officials and local law enforcement. We'll visit a summer camp complete with tree houses built for those with developmental disabilities. And we'll learn why the middle of the Berkshires might be the best place to take on the bar. Let's just say we'd have done it in New York. We would never have been able to have the leeway to make the mistakes we did. And what's it like to ride the length of New England's longest river? (laughs) Find out next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll start this week with an update to some of the policy and legal changes we've been seeing around undocumented immigrants. Tuesday night, the Trump administration took its first step to make good on the president's pledge to defund so-called sanctuary cities. The Department of Justice is setting new rules for cities and states to get the biggest federal local law enforcement grants called the Burn Justice Assistance Grant. Starting in the fall, cities and states that want the grant would have to agree to allow ICE agents into local jails. Local law enforcement would also have to give ICE 48 hours notice before releasing someone who would otherwise be free to go if immigration enforcement has expressed interest in that person. That means jails essentially detaining individuals on behalf of the feds. But according to a ruling in Massachusetts's highest court Monday, that kind of detention is illegal in the Bay State. Here to tell us more about that ruling in the Supreme Judicial Court and what it might mean is WBUR's immigration reporter Shannon Dooling. Shannon, welcome back to Next. Thanks, John. Uh, Start by telling us about the background of this case, Lunn versus Commonwealth. Who is Lunn and what happened to him? Right. So this man's name is Shrey Nuan Lun. He was facing larceny charges in February, um, but the charges were dismissed in municipal court here in Boston. And at that point, he was otherwise free to go. However, the court held him on what's called an ICE detainer. Um, So basically, ICE had filed this request that followed Lund throughout the court system saying, uh, we have some suspicion that he might be deportable. So when you're done with him, can you hold him for us? That's basically the premise of this ICE detainer. And so up to 48 hours is the common sort of request that this person be held for um, an additional 48 hours. 
And so that's where things got tricky. And that's what the SJC was deciding in this case, whether local court officers and law enforcement actually have the authority under Massachusetts state law to hold someone based solely on that civil request from Immigration Customs and Enforcement. And of course, this has become an issue recently because it seems as though these requests are becoming more common since the start of the Trump administration. Is, is that right? Well, anecdotally, you'll hear many stories about uh, towns and cities throughout New England not wanting to honor these so-called ICE detainers. You know, we hear a lot about sanctuary cities and um, not wanting to fully cooperate with uh, federal in- immigration enforcement. I-, I haven't seen any numbers related to New England that sort of quantifies any increase in the issuing of ICE detainers. They are a very common procedure and they've been around for for years, I mean, well before the Trump administration. So what's the big takeaway now from this ruling from the SJC? Well, the headline really is that local law enforcement and court officers in Massachusetts cannot hold people who otherwise would be free to go, again, just because a federal immigration official has asked them to do that. Um, The court ruled that Massachusetts law does not authorize that. There's no statute in Massachusetts um, allowing for that, uh, that custody. And so it essentially amounts to an unlawful arrest. We've talked about uh, ICE detainer requests on our program with you before. I guess a lot of people are probably wondering what that is in relation to something that they might understand a little bit better, which is an arrest warrant. Right, right. And that's an important distinction that the SJC did make in their decision. So detainers are requests. They're voluntary requests from immigration officials. They are civil in nature. Um, So they are not criminal warrants. Uh, Remember, Lunn was actually free to go after the larceny charges were dismissed, but ICE asked that he be kept in custody for up to two days. Uh, And so when it comes to ICE detainers, there's no probable cause. They aren't signed by a judge. Um, And that's where the Supreme Judicial Court said, okay, you know, if there's no probable cause and these aren't actual criminal warrants, then our law enforcement in the state of Massachusetts cannot honor these requests. So what sort of reaction have you been getting from different people around Massachusetts to this ruling? Well, the state attorney general, Maura Healy, um, has come out very supportive of the decision from the SJC. Uh, Let's hear a little bit of what uh, Maura Healy had to say about this. What this really does is reflect a complete rejection of what we've seen from the Trump administration in terms of its policies and practices, which fundamentally have been about stoking fear in our immigrant communities and doing things that actually undermine public safety. So it's interesting to note that the Attorney General's office actually did represent the Commonwealth in this case before the SJC, Um, but the decision of the Supreme Judicial Court really does sort of track what the Attorney General's office was arguing, which is that there is no statute uh, authorizing this detention, and if the legislature wants to bring this up and create a new bill authorizing Massachusetts Massachusetts law enforcers to do this, then that's another issue. But as it stands right now, there is no statute in Massachusetts to do so. So the attorney general seems happy with this. How about local law enforcement? Leading up to this decision in the Lung case, many of the local law enforcement that I've spoken with have really just been wanting more guidance. They've been looking forward to hearing what the decision was one way or another, just so that they can get clarity on what it is they are uh, legally able to do. And so 
Uh, one person in particular I spoke with was the chief of police in Chelsea, which is an you know, large immigrant city. It's a gateway city here in Massachusetts. So Chief Kyes welcomed the the clarity and the direction from the Supreme Judicial Court. And let's hear from him explaining how it is that he passed along that guidance uh, to his department. In the event that we do receive an ICE detainer, which right now we've been getting probably at least one a week, uh, if not uh, two a week, and uh, I said if we do get an ICE detainer, the detainer will be uh, filed with the person at the arrestee's uh, file, their folder that goes over to the court. But in the event that the individual is in fact bailed um, and we do receive a detainer, the individual uh, is going to be bailed. So the individual is going to be bailed. They will not be detained if they were otherwise free to go. That is the law of the land now here in Massachusetts. They will be released. When I've talked to people about this, uh, not only in Massachusetts, but in other states, Shannon, there's always this concern about public safety, though, about whether or not somehow this is opening up some sort of a loophole for people who should be detained to not be detained. What sort of opposition to this ruling are you hearing? Right. So public safety is a big, uh, a big topic that the Department of Justice mentions in ICE detainers. Um, Attorney General Sessions has mentioned that ICE detainers are are an important tool um, to ensuring public safety. But you know, there's there's pushback on on a couple of fronts. Um, one being that when we're talking about people who are eligible for ICE detainers, these are folks who otherwise would be free to go. So they have no outstanding criminal charges. Maybe they've posted bail. Maybe they have had their charges dismissed. Maybe they've served their criminal sentence. And in the eyes of the criminal um, court in Massachusetts, they're free to go. And so when you're talking about a public safety threat, um, a lot of folks, including Emma Winger, who is an attorney uh, who argued before the SJC on behalf of Lunn, um, she would say that, you know, that's really not a relevant argument because this person was already deemed um, to not be a threat by the court system in Massachusetts and they otherwise would have been free to go. Detainers only apply to folks who have, for example, been found not guilty or their case has been dismissed, or a judge has determined that they should be released on bail. So this case doesn't in any way threaten, you know, the public safety of Massachusetts residents. And we also spoke with State Representative Jim Lyons. He's a Republican representing uh, the town of Andover, Massachusetts. And he sort of right after the Lund decision came down, he became part of this team of uh, maybe two or three legislators here in the state who are opposing this decision and are basically um, taking up the effort to create a new bill that would, in fact, enable law enforcement officials in the state of Massachusetts to legally honor those ICE detainers. So you'll recall, we heard from Attorney General Maura Healy. Uh, We've heard from a lot of folks praising the Supreme Judicial Court on recognizing that there's no statute in the Massachusetts laws on the books as we have it right now that actually proactively grants this authority to Massachusetts law enforcement. And so it is unlawful as our statutes stand right now. But what Jim Lyons and some of his colleagues are trying to do is propose new legislation that would grant that authority. So let's hear from Jim Lyons. My role as a legislator is to put before the legislature language that will allow police officers to arrest people who are uh, found to be in violation of immigration laws and, in fact, have a civil immigration detainer uh, outstanding against them. But, of course, on the other side, we hear from representatives from the Massachusetts Immigrants and Refugee Coalition, from 
the Massachusetts chapter of the ACLU, and, and both contend that the legislature, you know, still needs to pass this Safe Communities Act, which is before them right now. It's a big, um, you know, politically charged piece of legislation. Some people describe it as making Massachusetts a sanctuary state. And a big part of that Safe Communities Act revolved around limiting the cooperation between local law enforcement and federal immigration officials. And so now the question is, what happens with that piece of legislation? So we've known for a while the president's opinion on sanctuary cities and probably sanctuary states. Um, We heard this news from the DOJ that the government's going to be restricting funding to places that don't cooperate with ICE. Do, Do you get a sense from officials in Massachusetts that they're worried about losing any federal law enforcement dollars? Well, we're certainly looking into it. You know, we have a few calls out to local police chiefs, out to the uh, department that administers these grants at the state level. Uh, It, you know, sort of par for the course with this administration in the way that policies are sort of uh, declared. There's a lot of confusion still. Does it officially entail a department saying that they will honor ICE detainers? If that is, a, you know, a, a clear-cut uh, criteria moving forward for these uh, grants, then according to the Supreme Judicial Court case and the decision in Lund, you know, Massachusetts communities and police departments cannot honor those. And, and so it remains to be seen really how this will all play out uh, looking forward to the next fiscal year of grant funding. Shannon Dooling covers immigration for WBUR and for the New England News Collaborative Project, Facing Change. Shannon, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Coming up, why New England is losing to Lyme disease. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Whether you're planning a weekend camping trip or just doing some gardening, our summer fun in New England is a bit tempered by a tiny threat, the deer tick. This summer is expected to be a particularly risky one for Lyme disease, and doctors have been seeing cases of other tick-borne diseases cropping up too. You've probably heard the advice, wear long pants when you go into the woods and use bug spray with DEET, check yourself for ticks. But despite all that, cases of Lyme are on the rise here in New England and around the country. Our guest, Dr. David Scales, is a physician at Cambridge Health Alliance in Harvard Medical School. These days, he's also a reporter. He's working on a series on Lyme disease and tick-borne illness for WBUR in Boston. Dr. Scales, welcome to Next. Thanks. Uh, Let's start with a little bit of history. Uh, Most people know that Lyme disease is carried by deer ticks and a little bit about how humans can be infected. But tell us the history of Lyme disease. Where was it first identified? So it was first identified by Centers for Disease Control Physicians in the Epidemiological Intelligence Service. These are like the disease detectives that go off and investigate outbreaks everywhere. In 1975, they went to Lyme, Connecticut, and they discovered that there was a really interesting phenomenon of a type of juvenile rheumatoid arthritis um, that was behaving not like a typical juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. It was, it kind of had an epicenter 
and rheumatological diseases kind of are thought to have more of a genetic uh, kind of uh, linkage rather than a geographic one. And so it caused them to look a little bit more closely and they discovered that it was related to Borrelia burgdorferi, which is a bacteria and spread through ticks. And why exactly Lyme, Connecticut as, as a location? And, and now as we see on our map, all of greater New England seemingly the epicenter for this disease outbreak. You know, that's a great question. Uh, we don't necessarily know why the bacteria got established there. There's some hypotheses about like why it started to really become a known thing uh, kind of in the, in the 70s and early 80s. Um, there's evidence of Borrelia burgdorferi going back thousands of years. There's, um, you know, occasionally we find cavemen that were kind of, you know, stuck in ice or something like that. They found one of those in Europe and they've actually found um, evidence of uh, Borrelia burgdorferi in his body. So we know this goes back thousands of years, at least in Europe. How it got established in the United States is a little bit more of a mystery. When we first learned about Lyme disease, what were the transmission rates like? I mean, how many people would get Lyme disease? Well, you know, this is something that's been uh, evolving because in the beginning, the numbers were low, but we weren't sure if the numbers were low because people didn't know much about the disease and doctors didn't know t uh, to, to diagnose it. So it's, it's hard to go back and kind of say, you know, what were the numbers like then? Because there was a lot of underreporting. Um, but it's definitely been growing. I mean, as we've started to get better and better numbers, like in the early 2000s um, and definitely in the past 10 years, we've, we've seen trends kind of generally going up in New England overall. Yeah, your series for WBUR is called Losing to Lyme. I, I assume that's not just about the overall numbers going up. I mean, what, what are the ways in which we're losing to this disease? The tough thing that we're really facing is that it's the type of disease that we don't have a magic bullet answer for. There's no one thing that we do that can stop it. And so we're, we're kind of losing to it because it takes a multi-dimensional approach and we're not really approaching it that way. We've got, we've got you know, some good treatments if we have good you know, diagnosis and, and we've got good education, but we're starting to learn that education just isn't enough. We know a lot about this disease. A lot of people that I know that I met while I was reporting on this knew a lot about ticks, knew a lot about how to prevent them. But no matter what we do, it's, uh, it's hard not to get, you know, bitten by a tick at some point over the summer. We did a story some weeks ago about uh, studies on moose in far northern uh, New England that were wasting away because of the prevalence of a different type of tick that was essentially uh, sucking the blood out of uh, young calves. And uh, the researcher that we talked to at the time said, the big problem is that ticks thrive in this new climate world that we've inhabited here in New England, that climate change has indeed pushed certain species into our territory. Is, is that one of the reasons why we're seeing all the deer tick that are carrying this, uh, this Lyme disease in our area as well, doctor? Yeah, there's, I, you know, I'm not an entomologist, but I've talked to a lot in reporting on this study. And so the challenge that I've seen that they talk about with climate change is, is there's a couple different phenomenon. We always talk about, oh, with climate change, there's um, a lot less, uh, you know, winter. The winters are a lot more mild and therefore it's not killing as many ticks. It's actually not thought to be the main reason. I mean, the mild winters do play a part because, you know, ticks live about two years. And in the first year that they're alive, they do hibernate during the winter. So mild or not, they're probably going to live through the winter. But it's the adult ticks in the second year that uh, if there's a mild winter, they're, they're out and active more often because they're pretty much out and active anytime it's above freezing. 
But the real factor with climate change is that it's made the summers longer. And so a tick, you know, as they live two years, they only feed three times during that lifespan. And so, you know, if they miss a meal, right, they have to get meals at certain times. And if they miss a meal, then that doesn't bode well for them to be able to survive to the next stage of their life cycle. And so the longer they have with a longer summer, then they have a longer chance to be able to grab uh, one of those blood meals and be able to make it to the next stage of their life cycle. And it seems as though with these longer summers, maybe shorter winters, that we should be worried about Lyme disease all year round, at least for many months of the year. It used to just be something we'd be concerned about in the summertime. Yeah. Again, this was a question a little bit of the underreporting because, you know, back when Lyme was first discovered and in the 80s and 90s is that we were still generating some awareness, there was uh, somewhat of an assumption that ticks were really only active um, and we could only really get Lyme disease uh, when when we saw the most ticks, which is primarily in, in, uh, you know, the late spring, uh, early summer, and then again in the fall uh, around October. But we've started to see, you know, as enough awareness has been created about this, that doctors are seeing uh, spikes of Lyme disease at those times, you know, late spring, or early fall. But then we're still seeing kind of a low level of cases uh, pretty much year round. Is there something about our environment that goes beyond climate here in New England that might account for the prevalence of these ticks, their their ability to thrive here? I'm thinking maybe about the fact that for many centuries, you know, this area was all forested. Then it was all harvested and it was all farmland. And, and now it's gone back to being very heavily forested again with lots of suburban areas. I mean, are we doing something that's making better habitat for ticks? So that's a great question. And that's a little bit gets into the theory of why did we discover Lyme in Lyme, Connecticut in the 1970s? Um, and it has to do with the thought that, you know, Lyme disease has probably existed here for, you know, millennia. But the way we use the land uh, has really changed. I mean, when settlers came in here um, and, you know, cut down all the trees um, they, and created farms, there wasn't really a habitat for ticks or really for deer. I mean, we hunted a lot of deer, too. Um, and even before that, Native Americans were I often, you know, there were reports by uh, early colonial settlers that Native Americans would, would set fire to certain parts of the land twice a year to be able to clear paths for hunting and uh, make it easier to grow certain crops and things like that. So, so there's a lot of things, even going back to the Native Americans, that they were doing that had the byproduct. It wasn't necessarily the specific goal to reduce ticks or Lyme disease, of course, but had the byproduct of controlling the environment in a way such that these diseases... Lyme and other tick-borne diseases weren't so prevalent. And now what we're really looking at is since World War II, we find that we have a lot more leisure time. We find that we enjoy going for hikes during that leisure time. We think deer are cute animals and we like having them kind of tromp through our backyard. And all of these things that we're, we are doing, and pretty much since World War II, have created an environment that is great for us, but also great for ticks. I'm wondering about deer and their role in all this. As, as you say, especially here in, in blue state uh, northeast, we, we tend to have a different view of hunting, at least in, in our urban and suburban areas, than in many other parts of the country. Of course, there's a hunting culture in northern New England as well. Do you think that too many deer is part of the problem? Uh, you know, this is a controversy among kind of uh, a lot of the ecologists and uh, entomologists that I talk to. And I would say that there's definitely some that are in the camp of if we are able to reduce the number of deer below a certain threshold, and I think that's the important thing. If you only kill a couple of deer a year, that's not necessarily going to do it. 
But if the numbers of deer are below, they think somewhere around five to 10 deer per square mile or somewhere along those lines, then that can help keep the numbers of ticks low enough so that, so that we can at least avoid some of the hot pockets. But there's other people that say that, that the deer isn't as important as other things like the white-footed mouse. And so we need to focus our control efforts elsewhere. I mean, the thing that I'm finding is this is, this is not a, uh, again, not a magic bullet thing. If we, if we only focus on the deer, you know, ticks find uh, some other ways to reproduce. If we, if we only focus on the mouse, they find a different way. So the thing that I've gathered as I've talked to a lot of these different people is, is we shouldn't necessarily have to choose between one or the other. We should be thinking about ways to look at both. For your series for WBUR, you've been focusing on Lyme disease rates in in Massachusetts. What are some of the trends you're seeing, and what are some of the places where there's more prevalence of Lyme than, than other places in the Bay State? Generally, what we're seeing is that for most counties in Massachusetts, the rate seems to be going up and slowly. The past couple of years, we saw a dip, but we thought that that was probably due to the fact that there was a lot of drought and some of the other environmental conditions that affect the number of ticks. But we're getting some early reports this year that, that the rates are, are up in general in Massachusetts. There's the number in ticks, of ticks are up, but the official statistics probably won't be out for close to another year. In Massachusetts, the cases are, are focused much more on the Cape, Barnstable County, and in the islands. And in western Massachusetts, um, the, the case levels aren't as high, but we do see that they're growing. And this, this is related to the fact that in, overall in New England, what we're seeing is the places where Lyme disease has been more established for a longer time, case rates are, aren't necessarily rising as fast as in some other places. And in fact, in Connecticut, the rates seem to be going down, but for unclear reasons. Like we're not sure if that's due to changes in the deer population or, you know, recent, uh, you know, rainfall patterns, because the, the rainfall in January seems to have some of the largest effect on the tick numbers over the course of the summer. There's some thought in places where the, where the tick numbers have kind of saturated the, the, the level that they can get to, then there's kind of yearly fluctuations. But what we're starting to see is we're starting to see kind of the, the shoulder areas. And these are the places like in Vermont, in Maine, in New Hampshire, the places that you mentioned that are a little bit more north that didn't really have the ticks established previously, that with climate change, as they're starting to see longer summers, the ticks aren't just being seen there, but they're actually starting to get established in a habitat there so that they can persist uh, year round and show up year after year. Particularly, we're seeing a pretty large increase in Vermont this year. What have you seen in, in terms of a public health response? How have public health officials been responding to these rising numbers in various places and certainly the fear and threat that people have about Lyme disease? Well, generally so far, the public health response has been limited to education. There's a couple of places where they're doing a little bit more than educating because education is non-controversial. We, we know we have to do education. We know we have to teach people how to protect themselves, protect their yards, protect their families, protect their pets. Those are really key factors in this. But if that's not enough, the controversy is what's next? If, if you're a cash-strapped public health department, where do you get the best bang for your buck? And I've talked to a lot of uh, you know, entomologists and tick scientists and ecologists about that question. And no one's 
100% sure. The, the best theory right now is something called integrated tick management, which is basically the concept of not just doing one thing, but doing a lot of integrated things of, you know, trying to reduce tick habitats, trying to sustainably reduce some habitats where there might be some field mice, try and protect uh, our yards from deer and think about ways to control deer populations. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. This new approach is something that's being studied right now, but there's no definitive data on what exactly we should do. And so because of that, I haven't seen many public health departments that are taking the charge on that. Um, the only one that I've seen, and there's, you know, and this is not the only one, obviously, but it's the one that I've had the most experience with is the city of Falmouth, for example, in Massachusetts is, is starting to look at um, ways that they could trim back trails, make trails wider. And they're thinking about ways that they might be able to train some health department officials to be able to spray some of the most popular trails, just to make it less likely that people walking on the trails in Falmouth will, will encounter a tick. Of course, these are all prevention measures that public health departments are, are looking into. The thing that many people are wondering about is, why isn't there a vaccine? Why isn't there something that you can just take so that you don't suffer the effects of Lyme disease? Where are we with vaccines? Well, this is a, a bit of a disappointing uh, situation because there was a vaccine. But due to some complicated reasons relating to uh, the, the risk of being sued due to the side effects of the vaccine and class action lawsuits, the manufacturer pulled the vaccine from the market only after four years, and they pulled it in 2002. And unfortunately, it looks like we're going to be pretty far away from one because that, that experience with that particular uh, vaccine and the fact that it needed to be pulled from the market, it was actually voluntarily pulled from the market because of these concerns over, over being sued. It was something that has kind of given a lot of other pharmaceutical manufacturers cold feet when it comes to investing all of the money that might be necessary to get a vaccine candidate through clinical trials. But you can still get that vaccine for your dog? Yeah, it's a very similar formulation. You can go to your vet and yes, it's, uh, it is available for pets. I don't know if you've noticed this, but as I travel around New England this year, more than any year before, I've heard people concerned about tick bites and not just because of Lyme disease. I've heard a lot of people who are scared about other tick-borne diseases. What can you tell us about other diseases that ticks carry that maybe people should be wary about? Yeah, there's there's a number. Um, and Lyme disease is the most famous of them, but it's, it's also in its early stages one of the easiest to treat. There's others that are pretty difficult to diagnose, but thankfully they're, they're um, much lower frequency. So there's things like anaplasmosis or ehrlichiosis or babesiosis, um, which are still relatively uncommon, but their rates are also on the rise in New England. There's also uh, tularemia. And there's also a, a tick-borne encephalitis virus, and an encephalitis is essentially an inflammation of the brain that uh, is called Powassan, and this has started to be found in New England as well. And uh, all of these diseases are, are things that are still quite rare, um, and uh, you know, a number of people that get them don't necessarily have um, a lot of symptoms, but occasionally they can be very problematic. We, we learn in medical school as physicians to, to keep those in mind, especially if someone is diagnosed with Lyme disease because uh, then they've obviously been exposed to ticks and then they very well could possibly have an additional disease beyond Lyme disease that could be, um, that, you know, could be debilitating and would require treatment. You sound down right now on the possibility of a Lyme disease vaccine coming anytime soon, but we read this week that the FDA has uh, announced fast-track approval for a, for a Lyme vaccine. They've started a trial there. Is, is there any hope on the horizon? 
you know, even if there is a fast track, I think it's still going to take a couple of years. I think there's some hope for some other interesting technologies, like um, Mark Klempner at the University of Massachusetts is is working on a essentially a pre-made antibody that would be able to be injected. And this antibody would help protect people against Lyme disease by basically binding to the bacteria while it's still inside the tick. So the bacteria would never have a chance to get inside our body and and start to infect us. Um, so I, there's some interesting technologies out there. There's some other potential you know, vaccines that are still very far down the pipeline that are looking at ways that we might be able to immunize ourselves against the tick saliva, and other vaccines that are focusing on trying to prevent Lyme disease in some of the other hosts that have it, like the field mouse. So there's a lot of research going on here. So I think, I think there's a lot of really great stuff. I just, I'm skeptical that we're going to see any big breakthrough in the next five, uh, I, I, maybe 10 years. I'm, I'm hopeful maybe in 10 years we might have something. So when you go for a hike out in the woods, anywhere around here, what do you do to prevent getting bitten by a tick? Yeah, well, I, I've I've gotten a lot of advice um, because that's the main question when I've I've talked to uh, a lot of entomologists and a number of other um, uh, people that are working in the field. And I, I like the advice of of uh, Dick Johnson, who's the uh, tick project coordinator on Martha's Vineyard. He says that he he sprays his clothes once a month with permethrin and lets them dry, and he has socks that he has bought that have permethrin embedded in in the socks, sprays his shoes as well, and he puts these clothes on, which are light colored so he can see ticks. And uh, and this is this is a man who every day is going out and he's he is purposely trying to drag for ticks and get as many ticks as he can find so we can find out how many ticks are out there. And he says that he's only bitten once um, that he knows of and he's handling you know thousands of ticks a year. So so he's really convinced me that w- when I go out for a hike now I, I I have sprayed my clothes with permethrin. I tuck my socks excuse me I tuck my pants into my socks. I do tick checks, but I am I am making sure that permethrin is now very much part of my arsenal. And again, this is coming from a guy who's out looking for ticks, and, and he doesn't even get bit. Exactly. All right. Well, th- these are good tips. Uh, uh, David Scales, thank you so much for your reporting for WBUR and for talking with us here at Next. Thank you. We've linked to David Scales' series, Losing to Lyme, for WBUR on our website. It's nextnewengland.org. Coming up, we'll head to the Berkshires for a little Shakespeare. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. One of the nation's largest Shakespeare festivals is a New England institution, and it's celebrating a big anniversary this year. Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts is 40 years old, and as reporter Rebecca Shear tells us, the company has seen its share of dramatics both on and off stage. In a 400-plus seat theater near downtown Lenox, actors are rehearsing one of the last and least known of William Shakespeare's 37 plays, Cymbeline. So bravely done, so rich, that it did strive in workmanship and value. This is true. Do do it one more time. The erotic was in there, but can you up the erotic, please? Sure. 
The director requesting more erotic is Tina Packer. She's the namesake of this theater, the Tina Packer Playhouse. It's her first time directing Cymbeline, and now that she has... I have worked my way through the whole canon, and some of them, like Midsummer's Night's Dream, I've probably done eight times in my life. The first was in 1978, the year Packer founded Shakespeare and Company. It was the troupe's inaugural play, and they performed it at The Mount, Edith Wharton's estate and the company's original home. Packer says they threw it together in 10 days. But it was an enormous success in the community, so we extended its run, and uh, we had a terrific time, and that's how we began. As for how the whole idea of Shakespeare and Company began, well, we have to go back to Packer's native England, where she was an actor in film, television. Including the one that follows me everywhere still, which is Doctor Who. But mostly theatre. And I had ideas about what I thought theatre was about. Especially Shakespeare. I knew every time I did a Shakespeare play, I'm talking about as an actor now, I would grow exponentially through what I would see that I hadn't seen before about humanity, about political structures, about the way we interact with each other. So she decided to tackle the bard as a director. So that I could have power to do what I wanted to do in the theatre. And I made the switch very quickly, I walked out of the television I was doing. Fast forward to 1978. Packer nabbed a grant in the U.S. and started her company. Not in a thriving theater hub like New York or London, but in the Berkshires. I wanted to see, can a classical theater company have an effect on a community? You know, in New York or London, you can't tell what impact you're having on the community. So I wanted an identifiable community. The troupe took up residence at the Mount. And current artistic director Alan Burroughs, who joined the company as an actor in 1989, fondly recalls performing all over the estate, in the house, the stables, and outdoors, in the main stage theater. Basically, you had the largest usable outdoor space in the country. It was... A hundred yards wide, we could bring horses up onto the stage and trucks. I remember doing Taming of the Shrew when we couldn't get the pickup truck to start in a downpour. And then on clearer nights... In front of an audience of about 700 people, you would have the moon rising up above the pines while Shakespearean text was being delivered in total silence. But Shakespeare and Company didn't just perform Shakespeare. They started a training program for actors and an education program for schools. Kevin Coleman developed the latter one little girl in a workshop. It was a 45-minute workshop, and she was playing Ophelia. And at the end of that workshop, she said, I've learned more about Ophelia in 45 minutes than I have the last four weeks we've been reading it in the classroom. During Shakespeare and Company's earliest years, they performed two or three plays a season. By the 1990s, it was more than a dozen. But with this growth came growing pains. Ellen Burroughs says funds were so tight in the late 90s, they did what Shakespeare's troupe did and had actors handle the administrative work, from publicity to the box office. Burroughs started a pub. Which, you know, largely meant that the actors' paychecks could be circulated back through the pub. (laughs) Once they were in the black, they hired staff to take over. But it wasn't long before another challenge arose. Major tensions between the theater company and the nonprofit that owned the Mount. And in any tenant-landlord situation... There are going to be different priorities, different visions, different agendas. After a drawn-out legal battle, Shakespeare and Company relocated to the sprawling 30-acre campus that once housed the Lenox School for Boys. So then we built a theater out of their gymnasium. 
They built another theater out of their hockey rink. And their dorms became our apartments. That was in 2001. Just as before, the company kept performing on stage, training actors, and teaching Shakespeare in schools. But behind the scenes, the drama continued. At one point, the company created a new position, executive director. Basically, when the executive director was brought in, there's a culture here that uh, he maybe didn't understand. And then there were miscommunications. And when misunderstandings are accelerated, then they can become very acute. So acute that what happened next was straight out of a Shakespeare play. An artistic director was ousted. The executive director resigned. Turnover and turmoil swept the company's board. After a pair of interim artistic directors steered things for a spell, Burroughs was hired in 2016. When I came in, stability was a real priority. Making sure that everyone was heard, making sure we put ourselves on a firm financial footing, and now we're going to kind of steady the ship. Burroughs plans to add more American classics to Shakespeare and Company's repertoire, to foster new work through playwriting workshops, and to bring company productions to New York, the very place Tina Packer avoided back in 1978. Had you decided to do it in a big city, do you think the company would have lasted this long? I don't think it would have. Let's just say we'd have done it in New York. We would never have been able to have the leeway to make the mistakes we did. Instead, they now have nearly 200 people on staff. More than 10,000 actors have gone through the training program. More than a million students have done the education program. So can a classical theater company affect a community? The answer is yes. You know, we're not just teaching the kids of the kids now. We're teaching the kids of the kids of the kids. (laughs) And performing for them, too. Nowadays, nearly 33,000 patrons flock to Shakespeare and Company's plays each season to experience the bard in the Berkshires. That's Rebecca Shear reporting. Next, we're going to take you to Zeno Mountain in Lincoln, Vermont. That's where two brothers and their wives started a summer camp with wheelchair-accessible treehouses for developmentally disabled adults and their friends. John Kalish went there for a visit. Will and Peter Halby grew up in Massachusetts and attended UVM. They loved Vermont so much, they bought 273 acres in Lincoln, and along with their wives, Vanessa and Isla, started Zeno Mountain Farm. It's not a working farm, but a series of camps that serve different groups of disabled people. In July, it's folks with cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, autism, traumatic brain injuries, and spinal cord injuries. Here's Will Halby. No one gets paid or pays. Everyone contributes. We cook for ourselves. We clean up after ourselves. Everyone's responsible for the care of each other and this place. And everyone's invited back year after year for the rest of their lives. No one pays to come to Zeno because the $1,000 a day it takes to run the camp in the summer is covered by donations from thousands of supporters. And the people who help care for the disabled campers are all volunteers. At the end of the day, we all have a passion for this camp because of the way it's structured. That's Akira Gilbert, a 21-year-old college grad who's been coming to Zeno since her freshman year. Zeno's structure stems from its founder's adamant belief that there are not campers and counselors here, just friends with varying abilities who care for one another. Again, Akira Gilbert. I was extremely cautious my first year, and then I realized that everyone is figuring things out as they go, and the best thing was to ask. 
my friends with disabilities that I was working with because they know better than anyone. Ask them what they needed, what they wanted. Exactly. I'm 39 years old, and I've been coming to this camp for ages, and I know everybody's name. Steve Cortez lives in Boston. He has cerebral palsy and walks with crutches. I come back every year. It's very fun to be in the cabin with every all my good friends. It's nice to live in the woods. I love it here. Some campers bunk in wheelchair-accessible tree houses. One has a back porch that is 18 feet off the ground and sweeping views of Lake Champlain and the Adirondacks. The tree houses were made by Beefer Roth, who teaches at the Yester Morrow School in Waitsfield. Musicals are put on at the end of camp. Performers with wheelchairs, crutches, and walkers take to the stage along with able-bodied campers. A.J. Murray, who has cerebral palsy, sang a solo from his chair. The Halbies have ties to the film industry in Los Angeles, and Zeno Mountain Campers help make feature films produced by professionals. This year, 31-year-old Ben Moncaba played a bus driver at a fictional Vermont dance camp. Can we get a sound test real quick? Moncaba has Williams syndrome, which involves medical problems, but is often accompanied by an affinity for music. So he was thrilled to join other campers at a New York recording studio, where they were coached and accompanied by Broadway professionals. I'm so glad that I came back this year because it's lots of fun and we get to do a lot of fun things. It's like a home away from home. That's how I see it. This is a place I'll never forget. In the fall, Zeno Mountain Farm will offer a retreat to young adults with cancer. Veterans grappling with PTSD will come to Zeno in December, and in May, the camp will host people recovering from traumatic brain injuries. That's reporter John Kalish. For pictures from Zeno Mountain Farm, go to nextnewengland.org. Finally, we're going to take you up to Pittsburgh, New Hampshire. It's just a few hundred yards from the Canadian border. That's where the Connecticut River begins. From there, it snakes some 400 miles southward to the Long Island Sound. It's the longest river in New England. This month, a group of river lovers are paddling the length of the Connecticut to highlight its importance and its beauty. NHPR's Todd Bookman went to find them on the water. Despite all of our pledge drives, NHPR still, still doesn't have its own boat. And so... Steve, you got room for one more? There was your reporter, stranded on the shores of the Orford Town boat launch. Public radio? For public radio, yes, the last seat on board the boat. And not just any boat. Two, one, two, three, and. For the next two hours, the Limetown Band in their royal blue polo shirts would be floating down the river on a pontoon. They played songs for the dozen or so kayakers making this leg of the trip. 
sands, kayaks, bright sunshine, and a slight ripple on the water. This low-key event is just one leg of the Source to Sea Jump-In Journey, a two-week expedition organized by the Connecticut River Conservancy. There we go. I haven't done an interview like this before on water. <laughs> About halfway through the band's set, Andrew Fisk, the group's executive director, paddled over in his kayak, grabbing hold of the boat's railings. And how would you rate the health of the river in this section? The, uh, the river is really clean. Our next job is to make the river full of life. So right now we got a lot of life on the river with hands and feet, but we want to be able to get more life in the river that's got fins and flippers and claws and, and pinchers. This section of the Connecticut is certainly much healthier than it was in 1959. That's the last time the Conservancy attempted one of these 400-mile advocacy events. It's the inspiration, actually, for the current voyage. There's footage of that 1959 trip posted on YouTube. Greetings, my friend. My name is Davidson, Dr. Joseph G. Davidson of Equinox Mountain in Manchester, Vermont. My business is industry and chemistry. Industry and chemistry, but Davidson was also president of the Connecticut River's advocacy group. The river then was a dumping ground for raw sewage and industrial pollution. Rusted cars lined its shores. Davidson, perhaps to prove a point, wears a gas mask in some stretches. This trip on the Connecticut from the source to the sea opened our eyes to the treasure of the valley and some of the ways it is being destroyed through man's carelessness and lack of concern for the future of his own kind. During the past 60 years, man has tried to reverse his carelessness. Advocates say the Clean Water Act, as well as a bipartisan tradition of conservation in New England, have made a huge impact on the river's health. Dave Hewitt is on the Conservancy's Board of Trustees. In 19, mid-1950s, they called it the most beautiful sewer in America. And now it's Class B. You can swim in it, you can boat in it, you can eat the fish that you catch in it. It's amazing. The Connecticut River, for all its improvement, still does have its challenges. Fish populations are low, nitrogen levels are too high, and hydroelectric dams are causing erosion in some sections. But as the band boat pulled up to shore in the town of Lyme, and a dozen kayakers uncoiled to enjoy cookies and iced tea, Andrew Fisk was hopeful about the river's future. We should be incredibly proud of the fact that this river is so much cleaner and so much healthier because we have invested thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours and hundreds of millions of dollars to make it a better river. But we're not done. The journey isn't done yet either. The group is on their way to the Long Island Sound this weekend. But before getting back into their kayaks, one quick swim in the river they love. That's Todd Bookman reporting. Just this note before we go, this is the 52nd episode of Next, meaning we've been at this for exactly one year. Thanks for being along for this ride around New England with us. We hope to have many more episodes to come. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Rick Grolo and John Dillon. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, 
WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.